Hi, I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Here at FX Medicine, we strive to remain clinically relevant. So stay in touch with us and please let us know how we're doing. We love hearing from you. You can email info at fxmedicine.com.au or contact us via Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us in the studio today is Elizabeth Mucci. Elizabeth is a mentor, educator, and healthcare professional with over 17 years experience in integrative hormonal and reproductive medicine. As a scientist, nutritionist, and herbalist with a master's in reproductive medicine, Elizabeth is a passionate health advocate whose principles as a clinician and teacher have enabled her to help thousands of patients start their families both in Australia and overseas, including the US, UK, Canada, China and Japan. Prior to joining Elizabeth's fertility program, most of these patients have been facing particularly challenging fertility issues that have resulted in multiple miscarriages and repeat IVF failures. Elizabeth's greatest ambition is to provide both her patients and peers with the tools they need to enable more people around the world to build the happy, healthy families they've dreamed of. And I warmly welcome you back to FX Medicine. Elizabeth, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Now, last time we spoke about fertility issues, uh, but we didn't get a chance to really delve into one of the major causes, and that was infections. So let's start off. How great an issue is infections as a cause of infertility? Infections play a major role in infertility. Um, and they know that things like, you know, herpes, um, even toxoplasmosis, cytomegalovirus, uh, the ureaplasmas, the mycoplasmas, the, you know, the chlamydias, the gonorrheas, the syphilis, um, they have all been implicated with um, infertility cases. And, you know, a lot of the time, the obvious sort of thing that we think about is all of them are triggering inflammatory responses. And as a result, every time we tend to see inflammatory responses, we tend to see some sort of alteration with our ability to attach a baby or um, to ovulate or, you know, depending on the mechanisms and the body and the genetics and, you know, because you'll have people that have had those infections falling pregnant. But what they tend to find is a lot of them are for, you know, they might fall pregnant but miscarry before their 20 weeks, depending. And some of them, they're fine up until about 13 weeks and then they miscarry. The waters are getting infected and their waters break and all the rest. And does this answer the TH1, TH2 balance sort of theory, if you like, about pregnancy, that, that you know, immunity is dampened to carry a baby, which is really a parasite? Because it seems to be not really true? Mm. It's more, I would say, um, about uh, a lot of these are encouraging endometriitis and therefore as the baby's trying to attach, it's struggling to attach and it's struggling to get good blood supply. Um, and so, you know, and sometimes the baby itself is getting the infection. Now, you've mentioned endometriitis. Mm. And then there's endometriosis. That's right. 
Let's differentiate between those two first so that everybody's clear. Endometriitis is obviously inflammation of the endometrium. That's right. From any cause. That's right. Which might include endometriosis, or is that classified as different, even though it's inflammatory in nature? So you could have both cases in the one person, but most of the STIs and the infections are are going to encourage, the the bottom line is like an endometriitis, Mm -hmm. um, and therefore you know, need to be treated either with an antibiotic or particular changes in lifestyle and or both or whatever. And endometriosis is a little bit different. So endometriosis um, is still not uh, 100% clearly understood because there are women with endometriosis that are falling pregnant and may never even know they've got it. And there's other people that might have the slightest amount and then they're feeling, you know, severe pain and all the rest. And um, But they know that infertility rates in women with endometriosis, especially with IVF, say, for instance, um, is greatly decreased as a result of endometriosis. Endometriosis is harder to um, deal with than endometriitis, mm. where you might just need an antibiotic and then the endometrium recovers and so on and so forth. So... With regards to endometriitis, do you get permanent scarring like you do in, you know, the um, salpingitis of the fallopian tubes being infected, where you you might get permanent scarring that that, um, has long-term effects on fertility or can it recover pretty quickly because it's a high turnover tissue? I've seen it recover fairly quickly. the and and as far as um, women who have been exposed to things that may affect the tubes, um, I've also seen those recover, but often it depends on length of exposure, how many infections they've had, um, how they've been handled, you know, whether mm. they've used the right antibiotic, whether or indeed been caught or even caught mm. exactly because because you know that's one of the issues with any sort of STD is that very often they're insidious mm. um, oh, yeah. and and therefore untracked, untreated. You know, do you find that it tends to be the more serious infections where they tend to get the more obvious symptoms like pain and fever um, that they go, hang on, something's not right. They present to a GP and then they find out that they've got an STD. How would you pick up somebody with endometriosis at, Itis as opposed to endometriosis. Mm. So a lot of the time, it's interesting because when women come to me, I ask for extensive screening because of this very reason, because often what's happening is it's hidden. Uh, they're not getting any symptoms at all and um, they've already gone through lots of IVF and um, infections haven't been particular infections. Like the, the general screening, the obvious ones, like the gonorrheas, the syphilis, the chlamydias have been done, uh, the HPV, you know, that sort of thing, yep. but not the other ones. So often herpes simplex, uh, cytomegalovirus, toxoplasmosis, um, they might just sit there quietly and not be detected. Um, And I've done that where I've actually picked up, um, say, for instance, both, actually cytomegalovirus or toxoplasmosis because we've done some screening and gone, you need to not 
go and either do the transfer that you thought you wanted to do with that embryo, just wait, or I can't have you trying yet. We've got to clear this out of your system because some of them are causing blindness, some of them are causing brain damage, you know, all that sort of thing. Has that got to do with load when we're talking about these, you know, devastating effects with fetuses? Um, Because what is it, 90 2%, 95% 2%, 95% of us are infected with CF, um, CMV. Cytomeg- cytomegalovirus, CMV. Um, but for most of us, it doesn't cause issues. And there seems to be this perfect storm that happens mm. where I, I I don't know about the load, but it seems to be multifactorial. And as soon as you get this other factor, whether it be hormones or stress or something, bang, mm. you've got a, a really acute infection going on. Mm. Rears so, its ugly yeah. head. So you're looking at you know, if their IgG levels are positive but IgMs are negative, mm-hmm. that's fine. Um, or you look at the avidity or how long they've had it for. So some of the girls we we sort of, you know, I can see that it's there right now, so I wait and we test and we retest and, you know, all that sort of stuff, how they're feeling, all the rest. Um, and some of them, you know, three months down the track, they're still showing positive, but we know three months has gone past and, and we know that that's okay for them to actually, if they've had it in their system for that long, they may have had it much longer and that's okay. It's just really the initial, you know, activity of it. And with CMV, forgive me for harping on, but it really interests me, this virus, um, um, do you tend to do, you know, palpation of the parotid glands or do you tend to look more locally? With the, well, Me personally? No, usually I just send them to the GP. I get blood test results. We get to find out what it is and we will. I'll get them to recheck. If it's just been that they're unwell and it's all happening right now, I focus on that way before we even start trying. Um, I do know there are some doctors that won't test the the CMV because um, if they do come up positive, some people will choose to actually abort their baby because they don't know if they've affected the baby. Gotcha. And so they can be in this dilemma. Um, But that's the way I generally do it is I don't want it positive when they're actually trying. Mm. And then I work on that and I wait, wait at least three months, maybe six before I, you know, depending how unwell they are. So prevention rather than treatment during. Exactly. And treatment during, or sorry, treatment as a prevention. What sort of herbs, nutrients do you tend to employ? Usually actually um, with a lot of my patients to start with, I'm always working on the immune system. So I always go in and strengthen the immune because one, I don't want to hiccup down the track. I don't know really where they're at as I first meet them. I don't know what's happening in the uterus. I don't know what their natural killer cells are doing. I don't know their inflammatory markers. So as I sort of start, I think, well, I want a really healthy immune. So I work on building that. So a lot of antimicrobials, you know, um, and um, looking at things that actually weaken your immune system. So we, you know that sort of activity. So we're sort of building the immune on one sense. So you might use things like um, golden seal, you know, sage, um, depending on what what area they're sort of at, Mm. or anti-inflammatory markers um, could be raised. So you're using a lot of um, anti-inflammatory herbs, which we've got some beautiful ones. And so I tend to start off with doing a lot of that antimicrobial work, looking at getting the uterine lining functioning a lot better and just their body in general. So, you know, are they needing 
um, higher doses of, say, vitamin C. Um, is that what they're needing? Are they run down? Are they commonly catching colds one after the other? They, you know, they're all sort of clues of where their body's at. And I want them at a point where they're pretty strong. The other thing I have found is women that tend to have... Um, asthmas and eczemas and that sort of stuff. Yeah, atopic conditions. Exactly. Yeah. I sort of work on that because I don't want them to be super sensitive. If they're actually doing that, they're, they're weakening in in the cold or as soon as they've got a cold and they're run down, I find that their fertility is compromised. So, um, yeah, so we work on those. I always work on that, even though people might think that's really got nothing to do with fertility. It actually has a, a quite a large role because it's inflaming the system. Do you ever have an issue with anti-inflammatory type nutrients and herbs used with immunostimulant? And I think that's a little bit simplistic, but immunomodulatory Mm. herbs and nutrients or herbs mainly, modulation. Um, Do you ever have an issue with that? They get some people saying, oh, you shouldn't be dampening the immune system because you want an immune response, which is inflammatory in nature, but they're different sides of the coin. Oh, yeah, totally. So you've got, you know, you've got the immune system that's fighting, um, obviously, you know, colds and flus and all the things that they're sort of having impact. And then you've got your own little internal world that's going on and inflammatory sort of responses. And that's where um, I have found they work beautifully together, actually. I haven't found it an issue at all. So for me, it's more about what is causing inflammation and I do get the markers looked at. So I will do the CA125 to see if women have maybe got endometriosis or pelvic inflammatory disease. They, they, that does tend to rise in those situations. Not all the time, though. And, you know, cytom- uh, the C-reactive protein and ESRs. And I want to see, is there any inflammation stirring? That's really, really important to me because it's, it's giving me a clue that something's not happy internally and then have a look at, yeah, the external world and have a look at, you know, how do I build a strengthening immune system for that sort of response? But I haven't found them contraindicating at all. Let's just delve a little bit into CA125. I, I do want to finish off a little bit on endometriosis mm, for, um, sure. after that. But CA125, you know, there was this thing probably around a decade now. It seems to have petered out largely, but there's probably some people out there that are going, ah, oh, CA125 is the marker for ovarian cancer. Mm-hmm. Can we please discuss this? Mm, okay. What's CA125? What's so, its relevance? So it's an antigen. And basically what um, – it has been used for ovarian cancer. That's, that's, but to that's, track it, yeah, not to that's screen right. it. That's right, exactly. You can't. So, um, so that's the, the obvious one. But what they found – and actually it does change throughout the cycle. So the best time to check your CA125 is in that mid-folliculate pre-ovulatory phase because when you've got your menses, it will rise. Um, so at different times of the cycle, do that. But um, really what it, what's happening is – um, it can rise when there's inflammation in that area. So it's giving us a clue that, hang on, you could have PID, you know, the pelvic inflammatory disease. You could have endometriitis. You could have endometriosis. Um, I've seen it where any sort of infection, if it's bad enough, can sort of put it on the higher ends of, of that. Um, so I use it as... I, I test it as just another clue that something's going on, but heaps of the girls come up with low CA125 and have had stage four endometriosis. So it's not it's not a definite marker by any means. But does it give you a clue as a screening tool or as a tracking tool? 
um, as in for, for which, for anything? It, like for anything. Like obviously it's not a screening tool no. for ovarian cancer. No. We know that. But you're saying it rises yeah. um, during the menses. To me, it, you know, you, you wouldn't have really any relevance of testing, at least not during that period of the cycle. Mm. But if you are in another period of the cycle, you said the pre-follicular phase, yeah. then you screen and it's high does that tell you that there is definitely something going on or are there some ladies that just have high CA125 for, you know, they're just one of those people that's more inflamed? Well, I'm, I'm sure they're there, mm. out there. I, I wouldn't you don't doubt find that? that, but I don't find that. I tend to find it's more the women, but that might be this, the women that I'm dealing with because yeah. I'm dealing with yep. a lot of the infertile women. So for me, it's more about if I see that it's on the higher end, mm. um, then I will keep an eye out for other things that could be telling me. It's just like another thing in the box. It's just another one that goes, okay, this person's got really high estrogens, but they're not displaying a healthy fertility. They've got re they've got some higher CA125. So what's going on there? Okay, some inflammation markers are coming up. So it's just part of the story. You know, they've got endo in the family, endometriosis in the family. You know, we know that six to seven, it's six to six to seven percent higher in first degree relatives. Gotcha. So we've got some genetics. Sort of there's look. clues. You're mm. sort of putting all your clues together um, because really the only way to find endometriosis is via laparoscopy. So, you know, I get so many people saying to me, oh, I've, I've had a, a high cosy, so therefore um, I don't have it, you know. And so then they go down the road of um, IVF and actually it's making the endometriosis much worse, you know. But it's more about, you know, it is more commonly found often in PCOS, so polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, and there's multiple reasons for that, actually, with endometriosis. There's actually a lot of things going on with endometriosis. It's probably pretty poorly understood. So when you're sort of putting that picture together and you've taken the time to get to know your patient and there is a family history and there are some markers and then you're looking at their lifestyle and there are things that we can do to, one, quickly drop those inflammation markers. One is really watch your sugar intake. You know, you, you eat your sugar, your interleukin-6 gets triggered in the brain, inflammation markers, cytokines go up, everything goes haywire and then you, you're sort of dealing with that where if we can just keep a lot of those inflammation markers down in the first place, um, as well as maybe using an antibiotic, then they might only need to use that antibiotic once instead of over and over and over again if we can sort of help with herbs that fight the bugs as well, you know, that sort of thing. Let's delve into this extremely controversial area of endometriosis being an autoimmune disease. Right. Now, um, I remember some people having taking umbrage uh, to a comment that was made by Stacey Roberts in a previous podcast on endometriosis. Um, but when we reviewed the transcript, she actually said that there are researchers looking at it as though it's an autoimmune disease, right. which in, is true. Uh, indeed, I think that is. Indeed, afterwards, I saw a paper um, that, that was using an autoimmune panel to try and um, see if it was feasible to use as a screening tool. But when I looked at the panel that they used, it was not on, on it, it was not looking for antibodies. Right. It was looking for inflammatory markers. Yeah, right. So one is I think Stacey Roberts was correct in saying there are some people who are looking at it. Mm-hmm. 
But it is not an autoimmune disease. No, definitely not an autoimmune disease. Because <laughs> there's no antibody. No, that's right. That, that would be very Otherwise, easy we'd to... Be using, oh, my God. Could you imagine? We'd be putting more and more ladies on methotrexate. <laughs> oh, my God. That would be an easy one. So no, it wouldn't. Go, no, as, as far as go, let's test for antibodies. Right, you've got it. Yeah, we can't find yeah. endo that easily. <laughs> no. And, yeah, then again, you've got the uh, the methotrexate uh, oh, treatment. Yeah, can you imagine that? That, that glorious treatment. Oh, yeah. yeah, lovely. Mm. So let's talk about the inflammatory aspects. You said... CRP, ESR, um, what other inflammatory markers do you tend to look for with endo? Well, pain. TNF? Um, ILB, interleukin-1B? I don't actually check for those. I don't? Actually, no, 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 but I'm sure they would come up in those cases. But I don't. I, I keep, I mean, I suppose in, because I would find it very difficult to find doctors that would feel okay with doing this. Like a lot of the time they've... And where would you get it checked? Yeah, I don't exa- know. That's exactly TNF right. Alpha. You see what no I'm saying? Idea. Like, yeah. you, you, it, it's as from a practicality point of view. Um, so far, I've picked up endo in almost 100 percent of women, and um, that's from a bias sample. Obviously, they come and see you for fertility issues. Exactly. But wow, 100 percent. Nearly 100 percent. So, um, and actually. Um, the professor I work with has said that to me. He said, you know, we need to do something because you're picking it up. But it's just that process. It's that funnel effect. When you're putting the story together, it becomes a little bit more obvious. Um, you know, you're making these women and couples very fertile, but still they're not falling pregnant. So, you know, you think, okay, well, how much of this is going to be to chance? You know, this is a really perfect setup here. Um and that's where a lot of the women have already done IVF, they've already done all that, they haven't fallen pregnant. And then um, so I know that they've made these eggs to the right size and they've made these A-grade embryos and then they've gone and plonked them in and they can't fall pregnant, you know. So we deal with all the other things that could be going on and usually there are other things at the same time. Usually there'll be infections. So often I'll see that an infection, again, could be a precursor to, mm, it's a chicken and the egg thing, which one came first? Was there an infection? there for ages and it encouraged the lining to break away and then retrograde up and through the tubes and Uh stick out. You know, is that happening? The breakdown of the cells, I'm sure that's... I tend to found women with infections tend to be higher sort of chance that they've got endometriosis as well. Is there a family history? You know, is that happening? But they have found endometriosis in men. They yeah. have found it in other... And so in they, the eye and yeah, brain. Yeah. Oh, 100%. And, so they've so, found it in other areas, yeah. um, thoracic and stuff like that. So they know it's not just the retrograde theory. They know that's not just the case, but it's probably a few things that are actually happening yeah, yeah. here. But, you know, and, they do know it's estrogen dependent. And humankind they do. isn't very good at looking at multifactorial things. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we exactly. want the one thing. Yeah, yeah. So is anybody doing any work on embryological issues? I'm not sure... If, you know, the studies, I know they found the studies, there were some studies um, showing that the egg quality can drop when you've got endometriosis because, and that was fairly recent, um, which is what I had sort of thought. Because I kept thinking, this is strange. This These women are removing endometriosis. You know, a lot of the doctors are going rush out there and start trying straight away, you know. But what a lot of the time I'm finding is it's not until about the fourth to sixth month after the laparoscopy that they are falling pregnant. So to me, logic was, well, hang on, if you've got all this disease state 
hanging around. Um, you've got a lot of inflammation markers there. You, often what's, you, you've got damaged cells. You need those cells to die off, new cells to grow and all the rest, and they're three-month turnarounds, mm, right? Mm. And so then you've got the um, the eggs that are forming three in a row, you know, as in month by month before, you know, three months before you're even ovulating, those eggs are developing. So if that endometriosis is around the ovaries or whatever, you've got blood in an area that shouldn't be yeah, there. Yeah. So you've got this oxidation happening. Yeah. So, so get rid of those eggs before you exactly. start looking at the... So what I tend to see is all of a sudden, so some of the girls were actually falling pregnant because the doctors were putting them in a panic, some of these doctors, going you know, now, right now, before the endo comes back, you know, go start trying, and then they'd miscarry. So And then three months later, as that's gone past, on the fourth month, bingo, they're having really healthy babies and off they go. So um, the impact of endometriosis as far as to the egg quality, I I have seen it. Long range. Yeah, but really it's not always. But usually the women that have successfully, in my clinic, successfully fallen pregnant in a very short period of time within six weeks of the laparoscopy um, and continued the pregnancy to full term, um, I could count on like... Two hands, and that's in eighteen years of practice. Yeah. So what I found most of the time is that time's needing to go past, and so in my just with what I'm seeing, I can see it's having an effect on the em- embryos. When women have done um, IVF, that have come to me going, well, they said they're A grade, or they might even say the opposite. They've done IVF and they've gone, look, you need donor eggs. You don't need donor eggs because we can see they're pretty poor. And then they've come through the system, we've got rid of endometriosis and bingo, they've got great quality eggs. Once you wait for a while. Once we wait, once we fix everything, once we get inflammation markers Mm. down, get the body repairing, you know, because the endometriosis, because it is inflammatory, it sets the body up and you're living with an inflammation, like living with that inflammatory disease for years. Mm. So the body sort of is, is has worked out all its biochemistry and buffers and things all around that. Then you've removed the disease. The body's got to have time to readjust yeah. and, you know, recalibrate all its sort of stuff. So that's what I sort of find. That's why I get them tested after la- the laparoscopy to go, now you're a new person. Let's have a look. Who are you hormonally, progesterones, estrogens, you know, and things like that. Long-term effects from surgery, including adhesions mm. driven by matrix metalloproteinases, you know, that, that sort of cross-linking of mm. tissue, that sort of stuff. Can you track that? Can you see who's more likely or indeed who's might have active, you know, adhesion formation? For me, the way I prefer, if someone's going to try and fall pregnant, this is in this case, right, if someone's not going to fall pregnant, Normally, I sort of say, look, hold off on having the laparoscopy until you're getting close to wanting to fall pregnant, unless, of course, they're in excruciating pain. Maybe but if they're, done, yeah. yeah, just because the closer we get to pregnancy and then you fall pregnant, a lot of the adhesions break as oh. a result of the pregnancy. So oh, it's like okay, right. your pregnancy yep. served you a purpose. Yep. Yep. That's why I tend to do it that way if I can, yeah. So let's get back into the active infections and, and the resultant things that happen. So bacterial vaginosis has an obvious um, deleterious impact on fertility. Um, I've podcasted with Maura Bradfield about this. Um, Tell me more about bacterial vaginosis, what you use to treat. Do you encourage the use of antibiotics for these infections as a first line in all cases? 
because of the long-term potential deleterious effects to, let's say, gonorrhea and, and chlamydia. We know that there's scarring that can yeah. occur with the fallopian tubes. Yep. It's unethical yep. and probably, I would say, illegal to not encourage antibiotics oh, in that 100%. thing. Are there any cases where you think, oh, we can treat this naturally? Mm. So I do. What I tend to do is, again, I'm having a look at the timeline. I'm having a look at the bug that I'm dealing with so that it all is relative. So confirm the bug. That's right. So confirm the bug first. Then have a look at, okay, in this uh, timeline of when this person is either wanting to fall pregnant or, or whatever, what's the best approach? Because they know things like, say, the contraceptive pill decreases vaginosis. They know that. Um, and, that and that would have a lot to do with now you've got a decreased amount of um, mucus, um, you've got a decreased amount of blood flow that might be flowing around and causing these things. So out of the two evils, if you sit there and think of it that way, what's better in this case? Yeah. How long do we, are we better off putting them on the pill, which I, I don't like to encourage, but if that's going to mean that they don't take lots and lots of antibiotics, that might be a better approach. Mm. Um, or do we just encourage really strong immune systems and have a look at what's going on with their practice? What are they actually doing to encourage this bacteria um, and, in, you know, in, encourage better sort of behaviour or whatever. But so you're alluding to the ping pong infection. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So let's go, let's explain that. Yeah. So if you only treat, um, and I've had, I've had doctors do this. So they've found an infection and they'll only treat the, uh, the woman. She goes back home and gets reinfected. And this can happen with UTI sort of stuff and it yep. goes on and on and on. Um, and so really it's about both of you have to be um, looking at your immune systems. You both have to be treated. You both, you know, um, change behaviour. That might be things like um, wearing different underwear. You know, you could be wearing things that are gr helping grow this bacteria mm -hmm. in large amounts, all sorts of things like that, you know. Um, and so... Um, yeah, you definitely need to be treating both partners. Otherwise, yeah, it's a, it, you've got the ping pong effect going on and on and on. And that's with candida and all that sort of stuff mm -hmm. as well, yeah. Uh, well, there's a whole host of infections. I was going to also make the point about um, uncircumcised men being a source of infection. It's mm. dark, it's warm, it's moist. You should be treating yourselves. Mm. Um, you know, we know that uncircumcised men are at increased risk of HIV, for instance. Um and HPV? I think so. I think probably lots, um, of, <laughs> yeah. lots of the infections. Yeah. yeah, so they should definitely be treating themselves as well as the partner because you're just going to be oh, yeah, transferring yeah, yeah, from yeah. a reservoir to exactly. you know, a, a newly naked you know, tissue that you've just treated exactly. um, if you're going to be using exactly. antibiotics. Exactly, and then the more antibiotics you use, you use, the more resistance, and it goes on. And then, oh, you, know. you know, I've got some patients that are needing to use IVs and stuff like that yeah. just to try and treat these bacterial infections. Topical treatment? Do you ever use, you know, douches? And I do, actually. Um, I tend to um, use vinegar and um, tea tree oil. Um, Ooh, in what some strength? water, yeah, just two drops yeah. in a whole cup. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, it works like magic, and so um, in some water, and then um, use an ultra thin tampon, insert it overnight, and you've got that whole antifungal. Um, thing happening with the tea tree, but you've also got the pH that's corrected. And a lot of the, the bugs can't live in yep. that pH. So it's a really nice way. The women find that it fixes it 
really quickly. Helps with itching as well. Yeah, all of that, like yep. within a day or two. Oh, wow. And so then I say, look, That's use That's a welcome, effect, welcome relief. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> so then I go, look, especially if you've got, you know, you, you tend to see things also like women have been using condoms the whole time, so they've been fine. Then they start trying to fall pregnant. And if the guy is, his pH is really alkaline, you might have, in the, you might have this encouragement of bacteria. That's what I often find. Ah. So all of a sudden they're, they're having sex. Because sperm is, is alkaline. A, a higher pH. Yeah, and, and uh, the vagina's acidic. So you've got that sort of, so the, that's where the guy's health can actually impact. So if he's eating, if he's quite acidic in nature, lots of alcohol and, you know, huge amounts of red meat or whatever, um, it could actually be encouraging his sperm pH to change. And so therefore the bacterial infections also change your pH. Ah. So you've got all that mess yeah. happening. Yeah. And so um, it's just, you know, it's that ticking off the box of what, what's all the little things that we can do here to balance that pH in the in the area. You'd be great as a detective. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I love uh, it. That is actually part of this. Yeah, well, it is. Yeah, Absolutely yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about uh, other infections. You know, there's herpes, gonorrhea and chlamydia. I mean, gonorrhea and chlamydia, there was a massive spike. Mm. Uh, just recently, just they recently. saw it again. Mm -hmm. What's going on? Is, is it, are we getting complacent? Um, you know, they, I remember with the, um, there was an initial concern about um, when the HPV vaccination became available, Gardasil, Gardasil in Australia. Um, that there was a concern that it might promote promiscuity and therefore, you know, not, not enough attention or care being given to other STDs. There was a more recent study saying, no, that's not the case. I've actually been surprised at how many of my patients are totally unaware of these other bugs that are out there. And I'm like, you know, often you'll see them, um, talking about, you know, one partner and the other partner and being really slack with their use of condoms mm. and things. And I'm I'm saying to them things like, oh, so contraception, you're using condoms in these cases? And they'll go, oh, no, because I'm on the pill. Oh, yeah. And I'm there, okay. And I, I don't know what happened with the HIV sort of thing, scare. Mm. <clears throat> but I say to them, it's actually, there's all these other ones that are really common. So herpes simplex and chlamydia. Her herpes oh and hep C, they're oh, really They're everywhere. So, um, and, you know, the, the warp virus and on and on. But it's just more the fact that um, I think a lot of it is is ignorance or or they've just, when they've had pap smears that have come back clear and maybe they're looking at the behaviour that they've had so far hasn't gotten sick, so therefore they must be doing the right thing instead of... And we're now not, no longer going to be doing pap smears. So, yeah. What's going to happen here? Yeah. So it's interesting because um, I'm still surprised at the lack of education that's out there. Mm. I, I'm actually quite surprised thinking it's been taught in schools, you know, all that sort of stuff. But they're not ever thinking even, um, they're just not thinking things like HPV and they're not thinking like I'm going to be living with maybe herpes for the rest of my life. They're, they're just not thinking like that. Mm. Um, crazy. Thoughts. Crazy. So let's talk about treatment, though, when this rears its ugly head. Do you em, um, encourage the use of antivirals to get the disease under control and then look at natural things to keep it under control, or do you treat? Mm. So it will depend on the severity. 
It will depend on how sick they're getting with it as well, how the malaise, and as well as where they're at in the whole scope of fertility because you can't birth when you've, like naturally, mm. if you've actually got s- some herpes sores there. Yeah. Um, so normally I will get them on the L-lysine and I'll say now this is, you know, we need to have this more long-term. Um, and uh, elderberry's been shown to dismantle the reaction of the um, the herpes virus, which is fantastic. That's all latest sort of stuff, st- uh, latest studies. So that's a nice one through you. Um, I, I've just found St. With, John's Ward? I don't use St. John's um, as much because it can then alter their their mood. Some some people don't do very well with yep. St. John's. Um, so well, I, I tend to sort I, of... Forgive me that. for interrupting. I, yeah. I think it's interesting. It's the high, high hypericin that's used for envelope viruses. And yet it's, if you look at the evidence, it's low hypericin um, extracts of St. John's Ward um, that work in depression. Mm. <laughs> so it's not an antidepressant yeah. if you're going to use this for an antiviral. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I've just I've not found that I've needed to. So I've used a lot of the um, antiviral sort of herbs. And then um, how as... About, how yeah. about, forgive me, I'm interrupting yeah, you, but how about Melissa officinalis? Did you use that? Um, no, I don't tend to, actually. Um, I just found I haven't needed to do that. Like, you know, Paldarco, you know, those sorts of things. And usually we get under control pretty quickly, actually. And it might be more the fact that I'm dealing with a whole heap of other things with their immune. So you're strengthening the immune system. Yeah. And um, what about topical doses, uh, topical application? Topical, um, so intra, yeah. So intravaginal use. Yeah, you can use elderberry topically. Yeah, so okay. that works really quite well. Um, but I've not really found that I've needed to do that. Usually what happens, women come back saying, or men, they come back saying, I actually haven't had an out, uh, a breakout for ages now. Um, reducing sugars, you know, you're really trying to strengthen the immune system, um, looking at encouraging liver function because you've got the liver involved in the immune. So you're doing all the other stuff and just making a healthier body. Yeah. Um, and I have found L-lysine to work really, really well. So a lot of the women just hardly get a breakout during pregnancy. Um, none of them that I can think of have had a breakout during the time they're birthing. Okay. Yeah, I haven't I haven't needed that. And but what, otherwise, if they did, they use the drug yeah. right then and there because, you know, that's what I was saying. Out of the two, you want to birth naturally, you, you'll have to. And we mentioned before gonorrhea and chlamydia. Let's talk about the treatment of those because this is critical. Mm. Um, you know, chlamydia can lead to some serious stuff. Serious stuff. Mm. So let's talk about ethics and even legalities about treatment. First of all, you know, all my women are being screened for it and, you know, I straight away want an antibiotic used here. I think it's negligence not to do that. And at the same time, use um, stuff that, you know, herbally that will support that. Hmm. Um, And then you do all the gut health at the same time and all the gut repair and, you know, um, it's interesting. I've actually come across a small amount of patients that will try and resist antibiotics when there is something quite serious there. Yeah. And um, I've actually been a little bit at war with them where I've said it's when you look at this, (laughs) if you look at the two evils. Yeah, yeah. That bug is doing a lot of destruction very quickly. You need to actually deal with this. I'll deal with your gut. Mm. Don't worry about it. That sort of can repair very easily. Those tubes get wrecked. You end up with fluid in your tubes. They're going to have to be removed. 
they end up blocked or mm. whatever. Mm. They're going to have to be, you know, removed if they've been scarred by these diseases. So, um, you know, and then your only option is IVF once they're removed. So uh, to me, that's way more dramatic than being able to just use an antibiotic and um, treat it. Yeah, and then you want to retest to make sure it's gone. You've got to test both partners, obviously, and make sure but they're gone in both. What about syphilis and even some of the more uncommon mm-hmm. bacterial or indeed viral, hey, let's go fungal as well if there are mm-hmm. um, culprits for um, infections that impede fertility? As in, do I would I want them treated? I mean, syphilis. <laughs> oh, my yeah. God. <laughs> yeah, of course. But, you know, prevalence. Like, I know nothing about the prevalence of syphilis in the Australian community. I know it's on the rise. I know it's on the rise in the States. Um, and I think because a lot of people sort of think of it as an old disease, mm. like it's something of the past, mm. um, it's just an STI and it needs to be screened for. And, you know, it's really that that ping pong idea again, because you may be um, meeting somebody that you're thinking, oh, you know, they're, they're not cheating. It's not about a cheating thing. It's who did they sleep with and who did those people sleep mm. with? Mm. And that's where you may be literally sleeping with the, the community. The community. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's exactly right. So you want to be screening. And a lot of people have fear around screening. You know, there's all that as well. So some people will be, you know, jump up and, yeah, find anything because I want to treat it. Other people are putting their head in the sand. Um, and it depends on what they associate with these diseases and, you know, what they've been brought up with and all the rest. I do want to cover off on a couple of the other culprits. What else do you look at? What other bacterial diseases so do you So I will screen for urea plasma and mycoplasma. To me, the anaerobes, which actually... So if someone, for instance, um, decides to put in an IUD, usually within the first 20 days, you're going to see an increase in infections, PID, really. Um, they need to, to be looked at and treated and all the rest you don't have to remove the IUD, but you need to treat it. And I would be treating them with an antibiotic. Um, a lot of them are the anaerobes. So you're looking at doxycycline yep. um, sort of treatment instead of, and that's the other thing too. A lot of people think, yeah, I took some amoxicillin. Long and antibiotic. you're going, yeah, that's okay, but that's not for this. <laughs> <laughs> that's, you know, oh, well, I've had lots of antibiotics and they never used yeah. doxycycline. It's like saying I've had all the tests. Yeah, yeah that's right. There's, exactly. There's, oh, I, I hear that every day, every day. Um, anyway, so um, they're quietly sitting there causing that endometriitis a lot of the time. And again, they just get passed on from one person to the other. Um, or, you know, they could be happily living in the bowel. And so you might have a really bad gastro. It's come across to the other side. So you might not even be sleeping with anybody. Yeah. <laughs> um, and actually it's gone up into yeah. the, the uterus where it doesn't belong, yeah. causing some issues and stuff like that. You mentioned your treatment about balancing all of the the gut health. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's the obvious thing there with terrain, diet, lifestyle, even sleep can affect the microbiota. But we all like to think about an active agent mm-hmm. and the one that we that always comes to mind is probiotics. Mm. So what sort of probiotics do you tend to employ and why? So I often will change up my, uh, my probiotics. So I might use um, uh, the more the merrier basically for me. Um, so the higher the doses, the more the merrier. Change up the, the ones I'm using just so that you're not always using the same 
probiotic, mm. but really important because every time you've used your antibiotic, you know, you've, you've made your gut just a little bit more leaky. Um, and then you've got that cascade. So you're then now more susceptible to infections. You're more, so you're going round and round and round in circles. Um, so definitely probiotics, most of my women will be on probiotics and often throughout pregnancy as well yep. because it will help the baby get the probiotic health as well as reduce the chances of the waters becoming infected um, and so forth. Um, so that is, yeah, definitely very important in this whole process. But always with prebiotics? No, no, I don't. And actually, if they're showing any signs of SIBO, I won't be using uh, prebiotics. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, gut is a plays a main, major role in the whole fertility thing for me because you're wanting a, a good absorption of calcium, healthy absorption of iron throughout pregnancy, you know. So I always work on the gut, get that really, really strong, always work on the immune system. So they're two areas for fertility that are vital. Mm. Mm. Well, it's the seat of the triggering of the immune system, mm, the T-Rex. Exactly. And obviously nutrition and, dare I say, supplements. Do you find that most people you can treat by tweaking or concentrating on their lifestyle, their diet, or do you find that you really need to punch them with some supplements for a little while? I always give them supplements right. because as well as, you know, obviously there's a problem there. When they've come to me, they're already coming with a problem. Um, or, I mean, even sometimes, you know, people might say, oh, look, I just want the best pregnancy that I can have. So, um, and they might be in really good health. I'll still use general um, things to sort of help because of along, along the way, I want them to be stronger. But, you know, the first three months of pregnancy, a lot of the women are feeling quite ill, um, well, at least until 12 weeks, some till 16 weeks, and they're struggling to take any vitamins at all. So if you've done that preconception sort of stuff with them, um, at least they've got some sort of, you know, higher amounts of nutrients in their systems with, the, you know, obviously not the water-based ones, but the, the um, you know, the, the omegas and, and that sort of stuff and worked on their gut health so that they're at least absorbing from the foods that they are eating um, and able to hold down. So for me, it's like I don't know what's going to happen around the corner as they fall mm, pregnant. Mm. Um, and, you know, the baby's at its most, most vulnerable stage at that state um, for the first 12 weeks of the pregnancy. Um, a lot of women have really low iron to start with. They might have really low iodine to start with. And they're just taking, you know, they go and get their multi, their pregnancy multi, thinking that's enough. And then their thyroid function could be thrown out because they're iodine, all of that sort of stuff. So I just want to make sure they're in perfect nick, vitamin D levels and all the rest before we're starting and then try and maintain it. It just makes it easier to maintain in pregnancy. So it's, we've spoken about mainly infections that tend to affect down there. Mm -hmm. They tend to affect the vagina and the uterus mm -hmm. and, the, and the tubes. But what about things like, um, you know, flu? What about things like um, group B strep? Mm. Tell me what you do here. Mm. So the strep B is an interesting one. Um, it happens often that the women will come up positive when we're doing um, some screening. And doctors will say, you know, they might have a heavy growth. And doctors will say, um, we're not going to treat it now because we'll treat it when you're birthing if it's still there. It's a hard one because you don't necessarily want to use 
an antibiotic. Um, however, what I found was often when you're using the antibiotic at the end, you know, if that's what's ended up happening, and it, and it actually happened to me personally, um, then that can encourage weakness in the baby. And so out of four children that I've had, that one baby where I actually did get treated and, um, you know, often they'll say, look, you don't really need, because I didn't want to be treated. So I said, look, you know, um, they said, look, if your waters don't break until the end, you're fine. My waters didn't. Actually, she was born in the sack. Right. This wow. particular child. Yep. It, was, it was really interesting. She was born in the sack and they still pressured me the whole time. And I was saying, but the waters haven't broken mm. yet. Mm. And they're saying, yeah, I know, but if you don't actually use this, they're going to take the baby well, you're not away. Covered. Yep, they, that's exactly right. <laughs> they're going to now put a lot of pressure on you. They're going to take that baby away. They're going to put it under monitoring. And so it was awful being in that situation. Mm. So I really feel for women in that situation. Um, but it's just that they did use the antibiotic and she ended up with lots of candida problems to the point where there was candida all over, like nappy rash, but it was candida nappy rash. Uh, she had oral thrush. She had it all and in a very short period of time. Um, so I could see the impact of, and I'm not somebody to really use antibiotics, so mm -hmm. it wasn't like I'd been using lots of antibiotics. I hadn't. It was the first mm -hmm. dose um, and it was just one shot through that whole labouring. You know, they, I think they gave it to me um, two times or something. But, yeah, it really had a major impact on her and um, affected her gut and all the rest. And so there was all this. So, so for me, I prefer it to be treated with an antibiotic, to, to cut a long story short. Yep, yep. I prefer it to be treated when we find it, especially in heavy growth, as well as use um, a strong probiotic because the probiotics actually work really well with this one. Mm -hmm. um, and, yes, if it comes back, well, it came back and you use probiotics all through pregnancy, um, but then at least there's a chance that it wouldn't. Even if you've got a heavy growth, it may disappear, but it's really unlikely, in my opinion. Mm. You've got estrogens that are really high. Um, you know, that's encouraging moisture and it's encouraging mucus and it's encouraging all that sort of stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I just sort of, I prefer it. So often I say to people, look, you know, if, if you're okay, doing this. That's what I prefer. And, um, but yeah, the doctors really resist that with that. Yeah. You do a hell of a lot of screening because mm. you want to know mm. exactly 100%. what you're dealing with. Do you find as a naturopath that you find resistance in screening or are you in that team that are well-versed with your knowledge and so they're more likely to be open to your requests? Mm. So this is a really good question. Um, and it's one that really annoys me, the answer to this question. Um, the doctors that know me and know my background, um, they will test because they know how thorough I am and they know um, how successful my pregnancy rates are. Um, they know the women have already done IVF for years and years, you know, or um, they may be really struggling with, say, vulvar dermatitis that's come from years and years of maybe candida exposure and all the rest. Um, and so for them, they've seen the suffering of their patients. So they're just happy to go, if you find something else, we're happy to look for it. And then they've also seen the healing of it all. 
So I've got this group of people that's around me that have seen the progress and seen all that happen, so they're great. Where it's tricky is where you the patient will go back either to their doctor and the doctor has no idea of this area. Mm. And so then they come back and they've gone, oh, they were really reluctant to mm. do this. They decided to do this, this and this, but, but not, not that, this. Not, not, yeah. Or they've gone and taken a swab and they've not done a high vaginal swab where I needed it to go right up near the cervix because that's where urea plasma and mycoplasma live. Mm. They've done a low vaginal swab, so now the results aren't Inactive, accurate. Yeah. Um, so they've had to, and I've had those cases where I've sent them back and said, no, it's actually a high vaginal, and it's come up positive. Mm. I've had... Oh, great, um, you would have taught them. <laughs> oh, it's it's so frustrating. It's frustrating for the patient. Mm. So other times are, I've had one incident, the patient said, the doctor is screaming at me right now. I'll, pull, I'll let you have a listen. And the doctor was going, you cannot get these infections unless you've had it sexually transmitted screaming on the phone saying that urea plasma and mycoplasmas were STIs um, and the person had just had a laparoscopy and so whenever there's a procedure involved, I want them screened again because I want to know did they get anything in that laparoscopy oh. and that has come up positive so many times. So they were negative to start with. They've had their procedure, which might be they've had... Um, a miscarriage, and so they've had a DNC, and then in that DNC they've actually contracted a bacteria. Well, there's an issue for the SSSD department. That's exactly right. And then what's ended up happening is we've gone and rechecked and gone, yep, there it is, there's a bacteria. So because I've seen this over and over, I don't want them then to be trying, and then we've got the same. So, so often you'll see women will come and say, look, I had a laparoscopy about a year and a half ago. And then they've contracted, or they'll say things like, um, I fell pregnant straight away, first go, and then had a baby, and I haven't been able to fall pregnant for the last seven years. And so my first question is, did you have an episiotomy or did you have a Caesar? And they'll go, yeah, I had a Caesar. Yeah, you're right. I'll go, right, let's check for it. And bang, urea plasmas, mycoplasmas are there. Um, and so they've been living really with like a, either a mild endometriitis or an infection. And so whenever there's, that's definitely a take-home message for all the prackies out there. When there's been a procedure, retest for some of these things. Yeah. And so some of the doctors will say, no, I've already tested for this. And this particular doctor that was screaming on the phone retested and it was positive. Right. And so at so, least they had the... So at least they could see, actually, procedures can do this as well. It's not that you've got a partner that at, might be sleeping around on you. At right. least they had the humility and the common sense to retest at the end. Yeah. So would the magic sentence therefore be something like, well, um, doctor seeing as the treatment that's gone before hasn't worked, perhaps it would be medically prudent to look at some other tests that might help the patient. Yeah. However, I've even had GPs <laughs> um, that have done the tests, found positives, treated my patients. We've had sensational stories where, you know, women have fallen pregnant on the withdrawal method, trying not to fall pregnant, while I've done six years of IVF and failed because right. we got rid of the, uh, the mycoplasma. Yeah. Right. They've seen this 
and something has happened where they then said, oh, look, actually there's, there's not enough evidence to show that this, so I'm not going to test anymore. So I've had that thing too, which is really frustrating. When I was doing the Masters, um, they know that part of the list of recurrent miscarriages was urea plasmas and mycoplasmas. They know they often will give you a dose of doxycycline maybe five days before, before you do a transfer right. because it reduces your chances. But, it, but even the professor that you work with, who's very well known in Australia, mm. um, is frustrated by uh, his medical counterparts. Oh, yeah. So, it, you know, I guess where I'm going here, I don't want our listeners to feel like we're doctor bashing today. No. This is a real issue. This is real. Um, and it's even an issue within the medical mm-hmm. um, profession. Exactly. Within their peers, saying, "Guys, what are and you gals, doing? why aren't you doing?" That's right. Things. So I think uh, you know. Hopefully, some of these um, professionals will be listening, and hopefully, they'll start to question. Mm. I think. I think that's the beginning. Mm. At least start to question. Elizabeth, I can't thank you enough personally, and I know our listeners will thank you for taking us through the myriad of things that you have to look at with infections and infertility. You always give me, and I'm sure our listeners too. These clinical tips to go, oh my goodness, I never thought about testing for that. I've got to say though, you always leave me wondering what else is there. And so I can't wait to welcome you back to FX Medicine and delve into some other issues with infertility and pregnancies. And I look forward to it. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Don't forget to visit fxmedicine.com.au for today's show notes, extra research and other resources.